Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. What is up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm your moderator, Keisha, and after a few weeks on hiatus, we finally reached episode 77. We really missed y'all, so welcome back. Here's how we do it. I'll keep an eye out for questions in the chat, drop them anytime, and if your question gets picked, we will get right to it. We're also going live on YouTube, so if you're logging on over there, same idea, post your questions, and if yours gets picked, we'll do our best to cover it during the show. Jason and Seth. What's up, gentlemen? How are you? Hey. Hi. Welcome back. Vacations, life. Welcome back. Thank you. Awesome. It's good to be in here. Yes. All right. Well, we're just going to go get right to it. Before we get to viewer questions, though, we wanted to kick things off with a little bit of a, an overview of our security features, right? I'll let you all take it away. Oh. With our security features, sorry. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, sorry, I didn't realize that was a question, Keisha. Um, you know, we, we implement some uh, pretty awesome security features, obviously. Uh, we are, uh, we have been uh, working with other companies in order to be validated as a, a secure site. Um, currently, we do use AWS for some of our databasing stuff that we're looking to in-house. Um, so all that security information has been validated through uh, processes. Uh, we're also ISO standard certified. So those are kind of things that uh, we set as a standard for cannabis technology. Uh, for a lot of technology industries, this stuff is fairly standard. So we're trying to just meet that as as a uh, ability of Arroya to to be in uh, tech space rather than you know cannabis trying to meet those levels of standards. Yeah, I think we've done a lot of work, uh, much to maybe some of our personal convenient daily lives <laughs> in terms of uh, data security. But it, it's important, you know, going forward, like everyone in this industry, one thing that I always like to uh, point out is it's cool. We're all developing IP as we're doing this. Like every run is some sort of experiment and something to learn from. So uh, this data, this data security is super important going forward. If someone discovers something in terms of cultivation practices or uh, genetics, they want to map that and own it. And part of that is us not letting the secret out, right? <laughs> it's gotta, gotta stay native. And also you don't want, uh, too much outside influence on your own data. So we, we do our best to make sure everything stays native and not release anything that we shouldn't. Right. And we work, we work with uh, quite a few MSOs and some of them have required us to be SOC 2 compliant. And so that's kind of the, the technology standard, the security standard that uh, we exceed. Sorry, y'all. Thank you. I was typing at the same time. Thank you for that. One more thing. Can we talk a little bit about the kiosk feature in Arroyo and just like how that can kind of help a little bit with, you know, roles and permissions, y'all being able to control who can actually access the data within your own company? You bet. So the kiosk feature is, is really a feature we designed from feedback from our clients who wanted some ability to access Arroyo, you know, either display graphs, input tasks, uh, register that their tasks have been complete. And the kiosk mode is designed to be run on an Android or an Apple device. And basically the plan is that this device could be mounted outside of the grow room. So lots of people use iPads in our kiosk mode. Um, the security features in the kiosk mode is that until uh, someone inputs their key, their, uh, their PIN number for their account, all that the kiosk is displaying is the room parameters. Uh, some of these room parameters can be highlighted with uh, out of range alerts right on the screen. So it'll be flashing a red icon. Uh, looks just kind of like our gauges dashboard where you're getting your humidities, temperatures, DPDs, light levels, substrate information, you know, water content, EC, temperature of the substrate, all displayed just in the gauges um, highlighted outside of the room. So it's a great way to give a heads up. You know, a lot of people are doing daily walkthroughs, uh, pretty common. The first thing you do is just walk through there. And, and uh, this kind of helps them not have to go into the room and, and check these values or, or use another system. And it just quickly highlights it with exactly the data that they're used to looking at. Probably the data that they went to bed looking at last night on Arroyo at home. So <laughs> that's a, a, a great way to 
have a heads up monitor, heads up display, a HUD for, for your room. It, it also gives a great opportunity uh, for employees to interact with Arroyo and use a lot of its features without actually having to pull out their phone inside of a room where they're getting all sticky and stuff. Like a lot of us has been there going through putting sandwich baggies over your phone and then progressing to trying not to touch it when you're all sticky to, uh, you know, just giving up and washing it with alcohol really regularly. Um, it allows employees to not have to use their own personal phone, go through all that gunk and still enter data, interact the way they need to with a stationary system. Um, we're really trying to recognize the process flows here and how uh, sometimes handheld devices don't actually work the best in a hot, sticky, wet environment. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so there you have it. We've got really built-in robust data security features. That's just inherent to what Arroyo does. But then also we've got kiosk mode. That's a lot of flexibility for your team, but also that allows you to control who has access to that data. So we take it very seriously. On that note, let's get to some live questions. Josh just posted a couple of things in the chat here. Josh, if you want to unmute yourself, you're welcome to. But let me, let me read these two. First, you had a feature request. If it hasn't been done yet, can we add reservoir selection to open sprinkler integration? For example, being able to add zone to multiple rooms. Anything you guys want to say to that? Um, not exactly on the sure on the question here. Obviously, with open sprinkler, I mean you can use those uh, outputs and you can connect a relay and have them control pretty much anything. Uh, when you say reservoir selection, I think of, uh, you know, uh, just a sprinkler solenoid that's different reservoirs for selecting what you're feeding to what room. Um, yes, absolutely. You can just control that 24 volt AC solenoid directly from open sprinkler. Or like I said earlier, you know, one of the things I recommend to clients a lot of times is, is just run a relay bank with your open sprinkler. Uh, and then what you can do is control basically any, any voltage um, input or output, and then just make sure that you've got your programming set up right so that it fires when you need it to. Yeah, to answer it super directly, basically you would be setting up, you know, depending on your pump setup, whether or not you're going to have a master relay control that pump and the valve. But essentially you would set it up so you have a master valve zone. For the whole room which is pulling from a specific tank um currently the way it works in arroyo you would have to do some reconfiguring with your open sprinkler when you wanted to make those selections but i imagine uh mostly we are talking about is having like a uh, a veg early flower mid flower and late flower tank for the whole facility that you can draw off of for different rooms and that's we can totally accommodate that it just takes some configuration and then breaking down the real simple functions of open sprinkler and the fact that as jason just pointed out it in the end is a uh, controllable relay device you can make it do i mean we could turn on lights we could do all kinds of weird things with open sprinkler if we wanted to that's the reality it's a it's an awesome automation tool and just digital control of physical things right excellent yeah josh go for it um yeah so i, I don't know if it's changed since i tried it last but basically it wouldn't let me um, add a second master essentially. So I'd have my master and then I'd say I have two rooms I want to pull from from one res um, and two rooms I want to pull from another. I wasn't able to set them. Uh, basically what would happen was it would force me to, other than, other than the master, it would force me to select a specific room in a specific zone for that valve. Um, so I wasn't able to take that valve and apply it to say three rooms at a time type deal. Gotcha. I would love to dive into that with you and see if we can make it work. I think it's possible. There just might be some fun playing around we have to do and also make sure that competing signals aren't stepping over each other at the same time. Okay, awesome. Yeah, we, we use it like we use it like outside of Arroyo integration and it works fine, right? I just couldn't figure out how to make it work um, through the Arroyo platform. Yeah, shoot us an email, dude. <laughs> We'd be happy sure, to cool. dive Thank into you. it. Awesome, thanks. That's a great question, Josh. Thank you so much. Uh, you posted a couple others. I'm going to get to those as well, but I want to also factor in uh, our YouTube questions here. Let me answer this one here from uh, Gil Next Door. Can you help me get a better understanding on CMH versus HPS versus LED? I see more commercial growers lean towards HPS. What are the benefits? Yeah, so let's just break out what they stand for. Uh, CMH being ceramic metal highlight. Um, HPS being high pressure sodium and then LED being light emitting diode. Um, 
Basically, the differences are, uh, let's say, let's start from the application side. Um, I guess maybe we can talk about the technical side as well, but typically CMHs are going to be a little bit lower wattage. Um, a lot of what actually, you know, how this affects the plant has to do with uh, the wavelengths of these different light types. And so basically a CMH is going to be, uh, you know, it's a, a high voltage, kind of like the HPSs, but what's happening is the chemicals inside that, the doping agent on the um, bulb in there is a little bit different compound. And typically those are going to be a little bit more blue. You can typically almost always see it with your eyes uh, when someone's running a CMH. They were very popular in bedrooms. Um, right now, LEDs are getting to be kind of uh, a standard in the industry because of some of the capabilities that have been developed in the last five years. Um, so what we do see is, you know, CMHs in a little bit older bedrooms or, or places that haven't decided to upgrade to LEDs. A lot of times those CMHs are doing a great job with vegging because they have a little bit more blue than the HPS. And blue uh, light is encouraging stocks, stems, and root growth, right? And basically, uh, you know, historically, HPSs have dominated the market, especially in the flower rooms, simply because they have a pretty reasonable full spectrum output. Uh, like a lot of times you're working with 1,000 watt DEs, so you can get a, quite a bit of light output from these devices. And so they've been the standard in a lot of indoor growing, not just cannabis, for you know the past three decades. Um, some of the disadvantages of HPS would be the uh, amount of radiation that is hitting the leaves, just the simple amount of heat that is put off by these lights and their efficiency. So they're creating actually more heat than they are light uh, by the, from the power that they're using. And so if we transition and, and talk about LEDs, uh, LEDs basically um, Histrionum is it's a light emitting diode. Uh, anyone that's familiar with electronics, there's a, a junction, and what they do is they put a doping agent in the junction, and they can produce light from it when a charge is applied to that junction. And uh, fortunately, LEDs come with all kinds of different um, wavelengths. And what happens is most manufacturers are going to have a lot of LEDs that are the white. Uh, sometimes they'll put a little bit of pink or purple in there, and a lot of LED manufacturers these days actually allow you to adjust the spectrum. So advantages of the LEDs is a very high efficient um, output. Typically they have less mounting constraints. So if you need to be in a two or three tier rack, it's nice because you can get a shallow LED. Um, they're efficient. Like I said, their efficiency is, is really one of the huge highlights is we're using probably less than half the power for a same LED to produce the same light as an HPS. And so, but uh, those advancements, the price drop in LEDs just because of popularity, I think what the market is right now is about half and half with LEDs and HPS as the main light sources. Um, and the LED share is, is growing at a pretty rapid pace. So that's kind of the application that's, side. I, I think that the important thing to look at, too, is uh, kind of, you know, the source of some of these technologies. So we're talking about CMH or HPS. We're talking about high intensity discharge lights. So this is technology that dates back to, you know, probably the 60s, maybe even earlier when we were looking at, um, you know, how do we use this bulb technology at the time to project high amounts of light out of a relatively small bulb. And uh, as growers, um, you know, we can we can look back at some good old, as we refer to them, trap grows from back in the day. But there were people using magnetic ballast from streetlights or, uh, you know, when we're talking about grow lighting, it was pretty much the same as what you would see in a lot of like gymnasiums and uh, sports venues and stuff like that. So we were working with, you know, CMH being that lighter spectrum, a little more blue, a little more, uh, you know, to us, blue and white light. And then the HPS being, you know, having more of that far red and yellow spectrum. And that was an obvious technological choice, right? We use one CMH for veg, HPS for flower, because we're getting a more desirable spectrum for flower. Now that we're moving into a world of uh, fine tunable LEDs, manufacturers are able to create a lot of the same spectrums when we look into it saying, you know, hey, we're gonna make an LED that's specialized for veg. That's gonna have a little more blue concentration. We're gonna have something that's adjustable to bring in more far red for flower. And uh, I think that's one thing to look back on, you know, when we look at like which lights produce the best flower. Um, you can produce great flower with both lights. Part of it comes down to, you know, making sure you have a spectrum that your particular strains like and gives you the chemotype at the end that you're looking for. 
Um, we see plenty of plants that are grown under, you know, uh, basic full spectrum LED. They perform differently under HPS because we're seeing, you know, different uh, spectrums. So you want to pay attention to that, see what your plants are doing, and then really fine tune it when it comes to leaf surface temperatures and then the spectrum that your plants are seeing. Because a lot of producers were we're in an era now where the world is transitioning away from HID lights and towards LEDs. And unfortunately for boutique growers, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to find your H your HID bulbs in the future. That's just the reality manufacturers backing off. And, you know, right now California is seeing it the hardest because the government is pushing people to move towards LEDs, which is fine. You know, the idea is like less emissions, more efficient use. However, as growers, we all have to adapt to it because as the market changes for these light fixtures, we're not going to have access to some of the old technologies we had before. And it's important to understand what those types of technologies were doing for you versus what the newer technologies are doing. And that's where crop registration comes in. Yeah. And one tip for people that are either setting up a, a new grow room or are uh, planning on changing from HPS to LEDs is do keep in mind what the different lights will do to your environment. So when we've got, uh, you know, hundred HPS bulbs in a room, we're producing tons of heat and we're burning off lots of humidity. So if we go in and we're setting up a new room, make sure that our, our HVAC and our humidifiers and dehumidifiers are appropriate for that light type. Yeah. And in looking at, you know, everything, we always talk about this, everything we're doing in this whole environment from light to HVAC to fans is about that, you know, one to two millimeters around the leaf surface. So when we look at like, uh, you know, certain people feeling like they get better color expression out of their HID lights, they get better turp profiles. Part of that is really learning to work with what, what our surface temperature is on the plant, that leaf surface temperature, what the nug temperature is. And then also maximizing that spectrum, but realizing that, hey, when I had an HPS, even though I was running, let's say, 75 daytime, 65 nighttime, my plants might have actually been experiencing on average more like 81 daytime and 65 nighttime. So making that jump from the one style of lighting technology to another is a little bit more complicated if you want the same chemotype expression at the end. And that's where as growers, we have to go in and really analyze that and see how we can manipulate that equipment to try to replicate those conditions. Yo, that's a juicy overview. Thank you guys for that. Great question. Awesome. Okay. Going to keep it moving. we got a few questions coming in on YouTube. Plus I got a couple more from Josh here. Taylor wrote, and this is a multi-part question, so we might need to break it down. Should I ramp up my PPFD from 800 week one flower to 1200 by week four, or should I start high 1200 going into flower and then ramp down through bulk? Essentially, when should I hit peak PPFD and when should I ramp down? How should temps correspond? So uh, hopefully Seth and I's answers are correlating here, but I, I like to be usually at full intensity by the end of week one, um, basically, uh, you know, no later than day 10 in there. And so going in at say 800 PPFD is probably a good place to go as long as you know that you're uh, at a reasonably high PPFD in flower or in veg, excuse me. So in your bedrooms, obviously we have 33% longer light that is being push to the plants. So if we're at 500 PPFD in there, then 800 PPFD going into flowers should be just fine in order to get the same amount of energy to those plants. Um, that's my answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the key is really maximizing your veg and making sure you're hitting your DLI goals when you go into flower. And like Jason said, ideally we want to hit, you know, within the first week is a great rule of thumb if you're really nailing veg, but, um, in general, we want to hit the flower room with the most light, most CO2 maximum production with the lights on as possible. So the longer it takes you to, uh, you know, ramp up those lights, the more productivity you're losing over time. So what we're really looking for is trying to max minimize that time where you're ramping the lights up and maximize the time you're at full blast. <laughs> A lot of balancing to do yeah. over there. I'm not, I'm not laughing about the question, by the way. My phone was driving me nuts here, people. 
that's in demand. <laughs> you gotta let them know you're on live. <laughs> exactly. Need a little bounce back. <laughs> awesome, Taylor. That was a great question. Thank you so much for that. Um, all right, Josh posted a question here. Seth, this, I'm gonna direct this to you. Seth mentioned using a bleach mix for clipping sterilization. Can he elaborate on mixed strength? Thoughts on that? Yeah, so we're looking for usually generally like a 0.5 to 1.5% concentration bleach. If you really want to go in depth on how to utilize uh, bleach, and one thing to pay attention to is getting pure bleach that you can trust the dilution rate on. But uh, some of the best techniques for that are housed in tissue culture techniques ad nauseum. So basically what we're doing is doing a, you know, up to 30 second bleach dunk, dipping in deionized water and using the same protocols that we'd use to sanitize uh, plant tissue to bring it into a Petri dish in order to bring it into the clone room. And that's really where you want to look at like, hey, if I'm bringing in outside genetics, you know, roots are bad, uh, unclean plants are bad. It's, it's really all about keeping that incoming biomass as clean as possible. That way you have a fresh start and you're not introducing any outside contaminants to your facility. But I would encourage anyone that look, wants to look into it to uh, experiment. And also, you know, you don't have to dive all the way into tissue culture, but if you look into any kind of tissue, pro tissue culture technique and program, it's going to give you a solid way to sanitize your incoming biomass. Uh, like I said, that way you're, you're starting with fresh, clean material. And then also remember, you know, if you, uh, if you pull in plants that have a viroid or some sort of internal infection, the, uh, the bleach dip's not going to help you there. So always keep an eye on it, take notes, take pictures, and then really practice with it. You know, when we're talking about plant sanitization, cloning, tissue culture, all of these things are uh, very scientific in nature. There's very precise ways and accurate ways things need to be done, especially when it comes to like mixing concentrations, but there's also the operational skill. So you need to be able to repeat this process time and time again, in terms of times of dunk, how you treat putting a plant in and making sure you get all the bubbles off of it, all of these procedures. So practice, practice, practice. And don't make a choice to uh, immediately stake your whole grow on changing this procedure. Like anything else, take the time to learn it and practice it. I mean, I, the best example I can give is uh, trying to teach people how to clone. You know, I've, I've taught a lot of people how to clone. Some people just can't get down <laughs> the, the hands-on art of it. And uh, sanitizing plants is just another one where that hands-on skill is extra important. All this uh, tissue culture stuff that's happening in cannabis is so exciting. So Josh, good luck out there. Keep us posted on what you're doing. Thank you for that answer, Seth. All right, we're gonna keep moving on here. We got a question from IndieBud on YouTube. They wrote, growing in two gallon cocoa, feed EC is 2.5 to 3.0, but runoff goes from 5.3 to 13. That sudden increase started after stretch. Is it because in bulking, it's taking less water and slower dryback? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, some of the best ways to analyze this is obviously by having root zone sensors and understanding what the EC is in the root zone. Um, traditionally, you know, when we're pushing a generative stacking is when we'll see a little bit higher ECs in the runoff uh, than the than the um, feed ECs. I think, you know, during bulking, typically what we're doing is we're adding more irrigations throughout the day. And so that's typically going to end up in a runoff EC, usually more runoff and then a runoff EC that's lower, closer to our feed EC than our red zone EC. Um, so you might just check your irrigation schedules and make sure that they are what you intend for generative stacking and for um, vegetative bulking. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you might have really nailed that uh, generative time and when your plant's stretching and really like you you found the point when it's feeding super heavily in order to build that structure because, you know, you got to remember when that plant's building stems, branches, any of these stiffer parts of the plant, it's there's, there's a lot of load on it to produce things like protein and cellulose. So it's going to feed a lot through those first three weeks. And if we looked back, if we could look back at your substrate EC data, what we'd probably see is that that EC line is not getting excessively high until that plant slows down on its rate of feeding. And what we're seeing is that plant dramatically slowed down 
And it's likely that now it's getting, you know, it's not using up as much every day in terms of salt. So we're seeing a higher EC spike. And just like Jason said, going into that, you might want to look at like how much runoff you're pushing, especially at the end of your P1s in order to try to balance that and keep it inside of an appropriate range. Because as we're uh, watering later in the day, we should see less of an upswing. But there is a subtle nuance where if those plants stop feeding, we've got to make sure that upswing doesn't get too high and manage it. And, you know, if you're in that situation, start checking your runoff pH. Make sure that that's not drifting up or down on you. And a, a good point to look at is if your pH is drifting out of range, there's a good chance you're not resetting that ionic balance on a regular basis. Awesome, you guys. Thank you so much for that. All right. We got another question in here from uh, Hector on YouTube. They're looking for a recommendation for data logging hardware for the tw the Terrace 12. Uh, I would suggest the Arroyo Nose. It's yeah. probably the, the best way to get data logging from the Terrace 12. Uh, obviously, not only is it uh, very rugged, uh, you know, it's in a waterproof enclosure. We've got 50,000 plus units out in the field that are all performing excellent. You get three minute data reporting and you pair it up with the uh, excellent Arroyo software that's built for cannabis cultivation and you get to talk to Seth or I. Yeah. And for reference, uh, both Jason and I got to use a lot of this equipment before the platform existed in its current state. And uh, I can tell you digging through raw data, sorting it and building graphs on a daily basis is something that I would happily pay for. It's a job that doesn't need to exist anymore when we have this whole future world of software ahead of us. That's right. So Hector, we'll look forward to you booking a demo or, or getting a, an appointment on the calendar. Oh, also of note, we do have Arroyo Go coming out here in a few months. So we have uh, more, more price point opportunities to get into it so we can work with, you know, smaller and smaller growers that may not have the size and budget or feel like they have the size and budget to make the full investment. So more to come on that one though. We're, we're looking to accommodate the little guy as hard as we can. Yeah. we got a lot coming down the road. So Hector, if you're not on the email list, you're going to want to get on that. All right. We have a lot of questions coming in here. I'm going to, I'm going to switch back to another one from Josh. And I think Josh, you may have to unmute yourself here, but he wrote VPD EC drybacks for rooting and budging in four by four by 2.5 rock wall. Looks like he's looking for some benchmarks there. Yes. Okay. So if you're rooting in, in your bedroom, keep your VPD low, that 0.6 to 0.9 range. As far as EC goes, you're going to be uh, being very patient with some light pulsing while you root in, trying to watch for that overall dryback to go from, you know, basically 0% day one. By the time we hit day five to seven in those four by fours, we want to see at least a 20% to 25% overall dryback. And then at that point, we're going to be pulsing pretty hard and then washing basically essentially up or down to a 3.0. And generally a few days before transplanting, I like to start pulsing those with a 4.0 feed so I can try to set those blocks up to a point where I have a good basis to start off stretch from. All right. Thank you guys for that. Okay. We've gotten a few questions in here about curing. Josh wanted to get some best practices for commercial curing. Taylor uh, posted some comments here on YouTube. They're looking for some scientific indicators to identify when the cure is complete. Um, let's, talk, let's do a little overview about curing. Let's talk about some considerations for that. Sure. Let's just, I'm going to start off and answer Taylor's question there. Um, so water activities kind of the industry standard for understanding when a cured product is, is ready for the shelf. Uh, it's what a lot of the certification labs that you're sending your products out to so that they can be labeled shelf state stable. Um, that's what they're using. They're using water activity, um, equipment. You can get that equipment right from Adium, uh, Aurora's parent company. And really what is happening with water activity is it's a, a lot tighter measurement than, uh, moisture content, uh, um, moisture content, excuse me. And uh, what, what's happening there is, you know, if we're looking for a, a specific water activity, we, we can get that in a, uh, a, much, a much more consistent product across the board. Uh, for moisture content, we would have to have an extremely, well, unavailably accurate machine uh, in order to, to really nail that. And so by using water activity, we can look at the water energy in that, uh, that bud. And, and really what we're looking for is if we can, you know, nail say a 0.65 uh, 
um, uh, 0.6 to 0.65, depending on how long it is to get to the shelf, uh, that can ensure your product has as much moisture in it as possible, um, which one is going to typically retain more terpenes. Uh, it's going to be a little bit stickier when it gets to your customers. And you can also sell a little bit more weight in product because you haven't dried it off. Yeah, and I, I think a really good point to bring up here is when we're looking at a water activity, we're looking at the availability of that water to microbes and fungus, right? So we're looking for that perfect dry point where we know we haven't overdried the product and gassed off a bunch of terps slash ruined the cure. And we've also uh, found that point where it's, it's shelf stable, it's safe. So basically, if we were just looking at moisture content, um, anyone that's in post-production or working with long-term longevity of the product is going to be taking those moisture content readings and trying to figure out what the water activity of that product is anyway. So with going with, by going with water activity, you're kind of cutting out the middle there. And then also you're, you're really fine tuning that cure to say, Hey, if we bring it down to a, a 0.55 too fast, we notice it's hard to get it to homogenize later on. We've kind of got a crust on the bud. If we dry it down too slow, we open ourselves to having too much water activity, AKA it's, accessible to microbes. We get, you know, certain types of rot in the product. So really defining where that's at. And then also looking, you know, in packaging, not just at that moisture content, but shelf stability, how long is it stable for? And then you can start to use some of those measurements to tune your cure and keep your plant or keep not your plants, but <laughs> keep your dried product in an acceptable range to facilitate the cure. Because as any of us know who have done this on a commercial level, if you dry too fast and your cure doesn't go off, you don't have great nose when you open the jar, right? So at the end of the day, um, are there guidelines to go by? Absolutely. But operationally, you want to know your water content, your moisture content, and your water activity. Track that and then uh, get people to smell the product because some of us working in, you know, too closely with it are jaded. Every once in a while, ask someone like, hey, does this have a good nose on it? Like, are we doing a good job or does it smell kind of like, well, like, hey, maybe we're curing it too fast or drying it too fast and not giving it a good enough cure condition to actually allow some of those terps and cannabinoids to mature? Because throughout that cure process, we're not, you know, it's not just letting it sit, right? There's certain biophysical processes that are maturing. We're letting chlorophyll and other sugars break down a little bit inside the bud. Um, so what we want to do is match up some of these, you know, KPIs, these key indicators of how that progress is going with how to produce that smoothly. I mean, I, I always hate to say it, but you know, some of the old, I don't say it to say it. I love to say it. Some of the old school techniques about like how long it takes to properly dry and cure still stand strong. We're just using science to replicate that. And reinforce it. Yeah, uh, exactly. And you know, it's, it's always nice to have, some type of uh, measurement that, Hey, I'm, I'm not losing my mind today. I, you know, if I got COVID-19 and my, my nose ain't working right, at least I can rely on some other practices to, to mm -hmm. help me uh, ensure the same product goes out every time. And give people an easy value. You know, if we're looking at packaging, Hey, before you package up a 10 pound lot, throw a sample in, see if that's ready to be packaged or if you need to hydrate it a little more or, you know, also, part of this, at the end of the day, we're selling something by weight, so over-drying is not beneficial to the producer, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, and something simple that you can do to just help make sure that your products are staying at the same water activity and moisture content is having uh, environmentally controlled kind of, uh, trimming rooms. Um, so just making sure that, hey, if our product is at 0.6 um, water activity, which is actually the same as 60% relative humidity in a room, right? So if we have 60% humidity in our trimming room and our product is at 0.6 water activity, there's going to be no moisture transfer from the product out into the environment and no moisture going into the product as well. It's going to be at 0.6 water activity when it leaves that 60% uh, relative humidity environment. Yeah, and some of those changes to make in the, in the uh, processing uh, workflow sometimes aren't hard. You know, we've definitely run into a lot of producers that are losing grams frequently because they just needed to put a uh, humidifier in the corner of their processing room. You know, that's, that's the cool thing about that whole process is sometimes the solutions there are incredibly simple. Um, but one thing I do have to find issue with, I can't imagine getting tired of smelling weed. Person, that's just me personally. <laughs> it's 
So if anybody needs a nose, I'm here for you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all for those curing questions. Um, yeah, great overview. But yeah, this is such an important part of the process. So glad we got to get into that a little bit. Iron Armor had a question here. Oh, David. We're going to get to that after this one, okay? Hold tight. Um, Iron Armor had a question. I have the same question, so let's talk about it. They want to know, can you elaborate on the difference between a chemotype, phenotype, and genotype? Yeah, so uh, starting off, a chemotype is basically uh, including how the plant is grown, right? So it, it's talking about how did the environmental and root zone factors turn a specific genetic into um an exact product, right? Uh, so just a really easy example would be, let's take two, uh, two clones from the exact same lot and let's put one clone in a growing environment where we've got low nighttime temperatures uh, and maybe a little bit lower daytime temperatures. Typically what's going to happen in there is we're going to induce a little bit greater anthocyanin production. So that's responsible for the purpling color. So let's say the, you know, the one clone that's in the static environment, maybe it's always 75 degrees in their day, night, throughout the whole cycle. Uh, it's not going to have nearly the expression of purpling as the other one. That's kind of the most obvious example I could come up with for chemotype. Yeah, yeah. With chemotype, what we're looking at is the overall result in different cannabinoid concentration, terpene concentration, and what that profile looks like. So theoretically, right, if we grow the same strain the same way every single time, we're going to have a very consistent chemotype expression. Um, and just as Jason said, part of that, the reason we, that in cannabis, it's gone so far as chemotype is we can manipulate this plant enough with indoor growing to have one strain that consistently harvests green. If we grow it at a certain, certain temperature and consistently harvest purple. And then going forward, even into like the extract market, when we look at wanting to get certain, uh, cannabinoids and terpenes out of a plant, we might be saying, Hey, we're going to grow it this way, but we're actually going to harvest it at six and a half, seven weeks. Like I, I grow strains that I pull down at seven, seven and a half weeks because I like the terpene profile pulled down at that point better than if I let it go longer. Um, that's, that's a personal thing for me, but in terms of broad market expression, it certainly exists. You want to have a quality consistent product. Um, when we're looking at phenotype, that's basically when you go ahead and make a cross, you've got basically, you know, one, I don't want to say one set of genetics because we have recombination, a bunch of different things happening, but we cross two parents and now we've got a bunch of seeds. Phenotypes are different seeds. Each seed's going to be a little different. And in cannabis, we grow those seeds out, sex them, try to figure out what's male, what's female, hopefully before we have any kind of cross-pollination contamination, and then clone that female plant over and over. So those phenotypes are just different expressions off of the same cross. And then genotype is the parents. What is that source material? Where are the genetics from? So genotype is, would be in this case, the cross. Phenotype would be which seed out of the cross that you popped and decided to clone off of. And then chemotype is how do you grow it versus your buddy down the road? And what are the actual differences in, in expression at the end of the run? Thank you. Finally, I get it. Doesn't it doesn't help that they all rhyme chemo, pheno, and geno? But right. yes, <laughs> thank you for that explanation. All right, David posted here in our chat. How do you measure water activity? Let's talk about it. So there are a number of ways to do uh, measurements for water activity. Um, probably the way that I would recommend is by using what's called an aqua lab. Uh, it's a food grade instrument that is used in lots of other industries. Uh, some of the biggest customers for water activity measurements are jerky and uh, cereals. Um, dog food manufacturers use this type of equipment. Um, as far as the actual technical ways, you can do a dew point measurement um, or you can do a, what is it, tunable diode laser uh, TDL measurement. Um, so those are some technical ways that you get it. Uh, really the, the most important thing is that you're getting a, a high quality machine that is giving you uh, repeatable results um, and that you're uh, maintaining that piece of equipment for predictability. So check out Aqualab, um, get a hold of one of the sales reps there at uh, Adium and they will walk you through how you can use it and the advantages that you can get to improve the profitability of your crop. Cool. Thank you for that. Thank you, David, for your question. Let us know if you have any more. All right. Rocket Bud Farms posted on uh, YouTube. Hey, guys, how many drippers per plant do you recommend and what size? 
Are 0.5 gallon easiest to control how much we feed? So the um, 0.29s, sometimes people call them 0.3s, but technically when you're from buying a net of hemp product, it's a 0.29, um, our, our most favorite, two drippers per plant. Uh, that being said, you know, 0.5s are going to be still very controllable. Um, it's a slow enough rate that when we do change the amount of time, um, we are not making a huge change in the amount of water. Uh, you know, if we add three seconds on there, it's very minimal change in the amount of water. Uh, another thing that's nice about the slower drippers is we'll have the capillary effect of the substrate to soak up, right? So if we put water in substrate too fast, it's going to encourage irrigation channeling. Uh, it's not going to allow the cocoa or rock wool in, in most of our examples to soak up and saturate into the corners of the substrate. And that's really important because one, we're paying for that substrate and two, our plants need that as available root zone. Uh, and actually three, because when we are taking measurements in the substrate, we want to make sure that we're attributing uh, the best average, right? So the, great, the greater the gradient in the substrate, the harder it is to control. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a blanket answer, honestly, about one gallon per hour per plant, whether you accomplish that with 2.29, 2.5s, or a single 1.0, something to think about is just operational redundancy also. If I've got two drippers per plant, one of those drippers for fit can fail, eventually will fail. And at least if I've got two drippers, I've got some redundancy where I might not lose that plant. You know, I should be walking around and looking at it. And then when you go up to like, let's say a 1.0 gallon, that's also a great rate, especially if you're in a two gallon cocoa pot, for instance. But going beyond about a gallon per hour, we see infiltration rates that are way too quick. Essentially, you're not getting a good mixture in the root zone. And it goes right back to irrigation channeling, like Jason was just talking about, where we're putting, you know, we go back to like an uncorked 20 gallon, 20 gallon per hour octobubbler. Um, it's really hard to actually make an irrigation event short enough that you're not pushing channeling through the media, especially in these small pots. You know, if we're talking about a big bed with a lot of volume and a lot of water we're putting on, sure. But when we're talking about a one to two gallon total substrate volume per plant, maybe pushing three sometimes, that's not a lot of wicking ability. It's not a very big sponge if you want to think about it like that. So you've got to put it on slow enough to actually get mixing and affect the changes in the root zone we want. Yeah. And I think another important thing to think about as well is difference between drippers and emitters, right? So a lot of times we could run, you know, say a, a one gallon emitter and then a, a splitter to two drippers. Um, I personally think it's pretty important to always have two drippers uh, in a substrate unless you're in a vegging four by four by four. Sometimes you can get away with a single dripper, but you know, it's important to have that water spread out as it's entering the substrate. Absolutely. What we're looking for is the most even mixture we can get in there. So if you're just watering through half the pot, the other half very likely is not getting the same kind of uh, uh, nutrient concentration. It's not getting wet enough. And we might see some, uh, well, essentially another microclimate there, right? Where a good portion of the pot, let's say 30% is not behaving the same as the rest. Therefore, that's 30% we're not using nearly as efficiently as the rest. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. We just passed the hour. We got just over 15 minutes left of the show. So if you have any questions and you're on with us live, now's the time to drop them in the chat. I'm going to move on to Instagram because we've gotten a lot of questions over the last few weeks that we were dark. Matthew wrote in, we use GrowLink and we do spot checking with our Solus meters, which has a big difference in readings to our GrowLink, such as a 20% difference and a 1.2 to 2.0 EC difference. So which is correct? They left a note here that their GrowLink, they were working with five to six inch prongs and the Solus is two to three inch prongs. So, if, you know, if the Terrace 12 is installed at the proper height in the substrate, um, that's the one that I would use for confidence. Um, basically, you know, the Terrace 12 is utilizing a capacitance measurement that Meter Group has been working on for three decades. Um, so it is the pinnacle of moisture content or water content, volumetric water content and electrical conductivity measurements in the substrate. Uh, you know, if, if you are in a really big substrate and that terrace 12 isn't necessarily attributing uh, the five or six inch prongs on the, the grow length, then, then maybe you are, you are getting a skewed measurement. But, but traditionally, anytime that I've used uh, Arroyo equipment, um, 
versus some of the, the grow link stuff uh usually the array of stuff is, is going to be what you want to look at for making decisions yeah it all, it all comes down to what sensor you're actually using with your grow link there and then at the end of the day sensor density um, just because I have a sensor plugged into one plant in a zone or a room doesn't mean I can ex actually expect, you know, after factoring in all my microclimates, that that one plant is actually representative of the entire row. I might get lucky, but, you know, these are living plants. It's always a dynamic growing system. So depending on what you're growing in as well, like let's say you've got uh, any any number of branded standard, standard pre-fill cocoa pots, compressed brick, right? I'm expecting to see across brands a fair amount of variation just because I've seen it a bunch across a bunch of brands. And also, I generally, if I order a pallet of one particular brand, um, I don't expect all of those cocoa pots to end up within even 5% uh, VWC at field capacity of one another. So if I'm just going around a room sampling, I can look at like, okay, this one didn't get as high, but can I really mid run, run a test to see if this pot even would hit 55% when the other ones are hitting 45 or 65. So at that point, what I want to do using something like Solist is go around and this is where, um, pretty quickly, if you start to total up hours doing all this root zone testing, you'll figure out that you could easily pay off a system like Arroyo. Um, what we're, what we end up looking for is overall trends that we can actually make actions on, right? Like, even though my plants are stratified in terms of actual moisture content and field capacity, I can start to recognize that, hey, overall, on average, I'm getting a 10 or a 15% dryback. Here are my irrigation actions to deal with that. And now I can move forward making good choices. Um, I think that's a, an important thing to understand is the there's a breakover point on like where if you had one sensor per plant in the entire room, that might be more data you can act on. But if you're way on the other side where you're severely under-censored, um, it's going to be tough to make those decisions without putting in a lot of time manually testing things. And that's, that's kind of where, you know, all this technology came out of, right? Like if we all had the budget to hire two people per room to go around and test plants and look at things all day, this would all be not nearly as hard. And actually that would be even harder <laughs> than doing it digitally. So that's kind of the balance you've got to look at is like, Hey, am I getting, you know, all the data I actually need from this one source to make that choice? And if I'm not, how am I going to go about it? That's a, that's a great point. Tom, you know, in reference to the question, it's like, Hey, how, are those sensors actually measuring the exact same substrate? Right. You know, if we pull a, a sensor out and put a different sensor in, we've modified the substrate. Uh, so we know that there might be some difference when we do that. Uh, you know, if we plug it into the other side of the substrate, there still might be some gradients within the substrate. Obviously, if we plug it into a different plant, we are looking at that uniformity. Um, I'd encourage the the asker to check out our growth behavior slides on um, on YouTube. I shot it a while ago. and talks about uniformity and consistency uh, as different variables. And so really, you know, some of the best uniformity I've seen in crops uh, using our, our sensor systems plus or minus 3% would be like absolute best, like very good, you know, a 6% gradient. Like Seth said, he wouldn't expect to see a 5% gradient uh, across a, a good crop. And so when we think about uh, that, that's looking at uniformity, right? How alike are all these plants to each other? And then really what's important when you are trying to crop steer is using the, uh, the picture of consistency, right? So if our uniformity is, is good enough, then we can start applying some of these strategies and have the population all act about the same through a day-to-day, day-to-day consistency of how we are irrigating and operating the environment. Right. We're using, uh, you know, at least with the T12, um, very accurate in instruments to actually get a good idea what kind of precision we're using in our irrigation tactics and look, you know, trying to project that across, across crop uniformity. Um, if we've got a a better sensor, we can get a better reading that we can trust. We can identify better trends and be more precise about what we're doing in the room because we know we've got, you know, some standard deviation going on in terms of moisture content, water holding capacity, and plant size. You know, another factor here is what are you doing in veg? What are you doing when you're making your cuts? How uniform are your plants coming in? If your plant size is you know, I mean, I, I would challenge any of these growers to go, you know, just go point at five plants in the room 
And then those will all yield wet within like a hundred grams of each other. Um, the, there's a fair for, or there's a fair bit of diversity in size in the population in any given grow room. And when you're looking at not only identifying some of these trends, but reacting to them, you've got to look at the factors that are creating these trends. And uh, let's say you have been rooting in into a one or two gallon cocoa pot and you're seeing, Hey, I've got plants of like, you know, up to five, six inches, different heights going into flower. Okay. Well, if that's the case, we can't fix those uniformity issues by the time you get into flower. That's got to be dealt with beforehand so that coming in, you're as uniform as possible. So sometimes I think there's a tendency for, um, especially in passion growers, to really focus on like the flower cycle and being reactive in there. And sometimes you got to really try to take, take a step back, collect that data, and then at the end of the day or the end of the run, look back and say, is this telling me that, hey, some of my plants are taking up way more water? Let me go look at that, take some pictures, register it. And now I know that uh, I've got 20% of my plants that tend to be like 20% bigger than the others on a zone. Now I've got to deal with that problem. And the solution to that problem isn't my irrigation system. It's getting that plant uniformity down beforehand. That way, when they come into this system, I have the capability to actually deal with it. Um, if, you're not, if you're not running a uniform crop, if you have a lot of issues run to run with, you know, just equipment in the room, those are all problems you can, you have to solve before you can really get consistent, predictable production down. Yeah. And probably the easiest way to measure uniformity, and I'm glad that Seth mentioned it as far as the, the, the wet yield going out the door. Um, if you are in a state that requires you to weigh each plant, just graph those plant measurements on a T-curve and give yourself an average and a standard of uh, deviation. And if you start working with some uh, processes to improve how you're cutting or you're trying to improve how your irrigation is distributed throughout the plants, um, all those types of things, you should see your standard deviation go down, right? So the plants that the curve is going to shrink a little bit, it's all going to get closer to the median weight. And then as you start playing with crop steering and or other ways to increase the yield of the plant, so let's get our uniformity in and then let's increase our yield with consistency. We always, we always talk about how this is, we're, we're in this time, it's coming out of the garden and into the factory. And once we're in the factory mode, everything, every problem has a root cause that needs to be identified. And unfortunately, a lot of times that root cause is much farther back than a lot of us have hoped at a certain point. Because yeah, the reality sometimes is if you've identified this four weeks into flower, um, you might already have your next room already set up in there. You might be like two, three months away from being able to solve this problem with a fresh batch of clones that you've treated perfectly and solved those problems with. And I think that's one of the hardest things for operators to get through is there's a, a pretty big time delay on a lot of these actions actually taking effect and showing an improvement in the bank account, right? I have to point out the pun there of the the root of the problem because actually yesterday I was working with uh, some people where the roots were the root of the problem. They didn't didn't have a very oxygenated, healthy root zone. Yeah, and and sometimes it's it's little factors like that that um, don't always seem super obvious. But once you have the data to look back, you can go, oh, that's been affecting us this entire run. I'm not going to worry about it. We solved the problem. Yeah, I mean, you guys just gave so much good information in that. And just a reminder to everybody in our community, our knowledge base is packed with education guides. I write a lot of the content, but I interview the two people that you listen to every week for that content. So take a look at what we got in our knowledge base, all of our YouTube channel, our videos. It's a lot of great information on there. But um, yeah, thank you for that overview. Again, jam-packed with overviews this episode. All right. This last five minutes, hopefully we can squeeze in like two more. We got a question here from Ian on YouTube. If I want to increase the EC in one gallon cocoa, what shot size should I use? How can I tell from the Arroyo app if I'm getting runoff? Thanks. Um, let's, I'm just going to address this question backwards. How can you tell in the Arroyo app if you're getting runoff? Uh, a couple of ways that you want to look at things is one would be how much dryback that you had and then look at the amount of water that's applied. Right. And so if 
we had a dry back that was 15% and we applied 20% uh, during our shots, we would have an approximate of 5% uh, runoff, right? As long as we hit our field capacity on a day-to-day basis. So I guess the, the other way to determine that would be is if you know when you've hit field capacity, the rest of the irrigations are going to be runoff. As far as uh, you know, what types of irrigations for stacking, uh, it's, there's a lot of things that are going to be dependent there, right? Would one would be feed easy, another would be how fast your drippers are. Um, if you have the right system, it makes a lot of that way easier because we can just start to determine what our our EC is doing in that substrate. And so uh, I always recommend that we are getting to field capacity with irrigations, but if we see our EC is um, is not rising then maybe we're getting too much runoff and we want to pull back on either the number of irrigations or the, the irrigation durations. Um, if we see that our EC is rising when we don't want it to, then let's increase the number of feeds and get some runoff. Um, really simple way for the, the less technically enabled, put a tray under your plants and see how much runoff is going to get a measurement and then get some pH measurements in there. It's one of the things I recommend people do on a, at least... You should do it on a daily basis is to measure the pH runoff of your plants. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've I've definitely noticed, especially in the cocoa world, is uh, don't be scared to get out a tape measure and verify your actual media volume. Sometimes that can throw you off when you're trying to do your uh, your calculations on trying to reach field capacity. Again, just figuring out what how many milliliters that percentage of shot is that you think you're putting it on. And then, you know, always verify. Uh, and also, you know, that's, this is where that 24 seven time series data on root zone EC comes in, because what we can do is look and go and say, Hey, is your EC not building because you're pushing too much runoff based on the math you've been doing about the shots you're putting on and how quickly you're putting on, or are we able to look at your EC line and go, Hey, we're seeing this water concentration when you're not watering overnight, go down. And yet your EC is not rising up. In fact, sometimes it's like mimicking or going parallel to your water content line. And when that happens, we can start to look at it and say, hey, based on the numbers we're seeing, you know, generally one EC equals 500 PPM. This plant is taking up as much or maybe even more than you're putting in. And that's where we can make the decision to say, hey, should we pull back on runoff and take a few days off and try to jack it up that way? Or this plant's feeding super heavily. Maybe we need to increase that input EC up to a 3.5 or a four to try to overcome how much it's taking up and also give us a little tool in our box to be able to continually reset that ionic balance so that that runoff pH is not drifting too far down or too far up. Yeah. One, one great example. I'm really glad that you pointed out the, the measuring tape, um, because, uh, some of the most popular rock wool manufacturers um, actually use metric measurements when they're manufacturing their blocks. And so like a six by six by six actually isn't six by six by six. Um, you know, it's a metric equivalent that's close to that. It's just the, the standardized units adjustment and an easy way to talk about it. Right. We wouldn't want to say a 5.95 by 5.95. So um, yeah. great, great point to just use measure metric, it yourself. Use metric measurements always for this stuff because uh it turns out that a lot of uh a lot of the stuff isn't manufactured in the u.s and we're kind of some of the stragglers there with our gallons and stuff and i mean just simple things right like a gallon in canada and the uk is not the same as a gallon in the u.s so those are things you want to be aware of and looking at like where you're sourcing media and then also we'll go back to the cocoa um if unless you want to pay five times as much there's always going to be a certain amount of inconsistency in that product so it's really important for you as a grower to constantly be analyzing that and seeing what you're working with. And I say that because I've seen plenty of situations where people ordered a couple pallets of one gallons and those actually measured out to like 1.8 or two gallons. Now, is that really a bad thing? No, you got more bang for your buck there. You got more cocoa for the same price. But if you're unaware, you can chase your tail trying to figure out uh, what kind of shot sizes you want to put on and what those durations are. I mean, how, I mean, drop a knowledge this episode, Seth and Jason, 
Thank you so much. We were at the end of the show. So if we did not get to your question, worry not. We have it in the question bank. We'll get to it in a future episode. But thank you to everybody for joining us live this week. Thank you, Seth and Jason and our producer, Chris, as always, for another great session. It is so good to be back on the air with y'all. Before we go, just want to let y'all know we are having, we have a half-off sweatshirts deal going on at arroya.shop. Head over there, get fitted look fly like we do all right thank you for joining us for this week's royal office hours we do this every thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live to learn more about arroya book a demo at arroya.io and one of our experts will be happy to walk you through all the ways the platform can improve your cultivation production process if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on office hours post questions anytime in the arroya app drop your questions in the chat or on youtube send us an email to sales at arroya.io or dms we are on all the socials instagram tiktok YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. Definitely want to hear from you. And we'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video and we will post it on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. All right. We'll see you next session. Thanks all. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.